Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Addiction Treatments That Work. I'm your host, Kenneth Anderson. Tonight, it is May 9th of 2013, and tonight our guest is Michelle Rosenthal. She is the author of Before the World Intruded. Uh, before we start the show, I'm going to do a little blurb for our website and our book. Our website is hamsnetwork.org. We are a free-of-charge lay-led support group for people who want to make any positive change in their drinking habits, from safer drinking to reduced drinking to quitting altogether. And our book is called How to Change Your Drinking, A Harm Reduction Guide to Alcohol. It's available from Amazon. For more information, go to hamsnetwork.org slash book. Our guest, Michelle Rosenthal, is with us right now. How are you doing this evening, Michelle? I'm doing great, Ken. Thank you so much for inviting me to chat with you tonight. Well, thanks for being on the show. Uh, tell me uh, about a little bit about your experiences. Did you have post-traumatic stress disorder yourself? I did, actually. Can I? Uh, when I was just a 13-year-old kid, I survived an illness so rare none of my doctors had actually ever seen it before. I ended up being allergic to an antibiotic that a doctor prescribed for me, and it literally turned me into a full-body burn victim almost overnight. And by the time I was ultimately released from the hospital, I had lost 100% of my skin. But more than that, Ken, I had lost myself. And when I came out of the hospital after this horrific experience and I'd had an out-of-body experience, and if you think back to yourself, Ken, at the age of 13, what kind of coping skills did you have for major trauma? I don't know if I had coping skills for major trauma. <laughs> That's what I mean. I came out of this experience and I just literally, my mind could not wrap around the pain, the fear, the horror, the terror, and the fact that when I left the hospital, the doctors told me, if this ever happens to you again, you will not survive. So I went out into the world in a body that felt unsafe, in a position where at any moment my body could betray me again, having to deal with all of the memories that I really could not, they were so overwhelming. And, and so I, you know, I tried to assimilate back into my life as an eighth grader and it just did not go as smoothly as, as I, you know, one would hope. I became enormously anxious, sleep deprived because I had very awful sleep problems. I developed an eating disorder and nightmares. And back in the 19, early 1980s, PTSD was really only being applied to veterans coming out of the Vietnam War and it was not so much being applied to civilian kids with horrific illness. So when I started having symptoms, first of all, I hid them because nobody wants anyone to know that you're feeling crazy and insane inside. And also, I wanted to be brave. You know, we come through traumatic things. It affects the people around us. I wanted to bounce back and not be a coward. And what happened was I just went more and more into PTSD instead of learning how to process and integrate so that I could release all of what was causing that stress. So I did, Ken, for over 20 years, end up with post-traumatic stress disorder because nobody diagnosed it properly until things were so bad that I had to quit my job. I had horrible health problems and emotional meltdowns from which I didn't bounce back. And it was only when things got really critical that I actually got really serious about getting help and you know, trying to figure out what's gone wrong here. And then realizing that PTSD really applies to so many of us. Trauma 
happens across the board, obviously in the military, but also child abuse, sexual assault, rape, natural disasters, domestic violence, car accidents. And, and I, I learned a lot, actually, by starting to figure out what was wrong with me and realizing while I felt crazy, I was actually really normal for a trauma survivor who was struggling with the past. Well, tell me a little bit about how you how you got treatment for this. Uh, what happened, and how did you get treatment? Well, I started in treatment um, where most of us start, which is you know talk therapy. Let's start talking about it, which I think is a really great place to start because a lot of times you can have so many ideas flying around in your head and such chaos, and when you start to put language and put it out of your head, you can. Number one, start controlling the material instead of being controlled by it. Number two, diffuse the fear because the fear is if I go anywhere near any of these ideas or memories, I will implode or get lost in it. And neither one of those things really happen when you start to share and you have someone witnessing and supporting what you're trying to express. And number three, you start to realize I'm not crazy after all. I'm just really dealing with some heavy things here, and I need some help. So talk therapy was a great place for me to start. The problem was talk therapy, I'd never heard a case. and You know, I'm the founder of HealMyPTSD.com, so I hear from survivors from around the world, and I work with survivors privately and in groups. I have not met a single survivor yet, even out of all my colleagues who are PTSD survivors who have healed Nobody heals just by talking about it. So once I realized, okay, all of this talking isn't really getting me where I want to go, it ended up actually increasing my symptoms rather than decreasing them, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. which is natural. I think you, you can really re-traumatize yourself if you endlessly talk about what traumatized you to begin with. And I think at a certain point we had to stop telling our story and find another way to resolve what's wrong. And from there, I branched out into a lot of alternative modalities. There are so many, and some of the top that I was working with at the time were things like EMDR, like emotional, um, sorry, eye movement desensitization and reprocessing, EFT, which is emotional freedom technique. If you've heard of tapping, that mm -hmm. was uh, something. Thought field therapy, which is very similar to tapping, tap is acupressure technique. I mean, I went through all of these alternative modalities, and they brought me to a place of functionality, which was great. I went back to work, and I was starting to feel like I can handle the anxiety that I live with because, you know what, Ken, at that point, the anxiety felt really normal. Like, this is just me, and if I can find a way to manage this anxiety, I was cool with that for a while. And then I started to think, well, if I could manage and function, wouldn't it be great not to have these nightmares? Wouldn't it be great to be able to sleep through the night? And wouldn't it be great to not feel so stressed all the time? And so then I started looking for, well, how am I going to go the rest of the way? I'm functional now, but not functional on a normal scale, functional on a PTSD scale. I want these symptoms gone. And, you know, for for anyone who doesn't really know what PTSD symptoms are about, they come in three categories, avoidance, arousal, and re-experiencing. So avoidance 
don't take me anywhere near the place that my trauma happened. Don't ask me to experience any sensory information that reminds me of it. So no smell, no sound, no taste, no touch. And don't make me talk about it because <laughs> I want to avoid that at all costs. And then arousal is hyper-arousal, hyper-vigilance, the feeling I'm always on edge because something dangerous is coming and I need to be prepared. And we see in there things like exaggerated startle response. If you've ever walked into a room with a PTSD survivor and they jump three feet in the air, that's exaggerated startle response because there's no threat just because you've walked into the room. And then re-experiencing intrusive thoughts, flashbacks, nightmares, so that on the one hand, we're trying to avoid it all, and on the other hand, we can't stop thinking about it. So you can really get to a place, and this is when PTSD is diagnosed, when all of that coalesces, those symptoms have been going on for more than four weeks, and they are rendering you dysfunctional in your personal and professional ability to cope and, and be in the world. And so um, with my treatment, I had gotten to a place where, okay, I can go back to work. I'm somewhat functional in the real world, but oh, no, somewhat functional in the PTSD world, but not still really dependably functional in the real world, and really tired of sleeping just two hours a night. I was always exhausted and sick of the nightmares and the anxiety, and so I decided, all right, I've got to go. There's more to do here, and that's one of the hard things, Ken, is recovery is really difficult. Facing all of that dealing with the pain that that brings and the added stress and the fact that so often it feels like you deal with one thing only to find that when it's finished, another thing pops up in its place. So it can feel like recovery is just endless. And so I then switched to I didn't want to talk about it anymore. I didn't want to tap about it anymore. I needed something different. And the very cool thing about PTSD recovery is there are a slew of modalities, and it's really up to each of us to find our own individual path. There's no one-size-fits-all answer, and there's no, well, if you just work at it for three months, you'll be finished. We all vary in the amount of time that we take. So then I branched out into something that I thought was completely ridiculous, but I didn't know what else to do. I'd heard on the radio a commercial that said that hypnosis could heal a nicotine addiction. Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, post-traumatic stress disorder to me feels like an identity crisis because I, I can't see myself as anything other than a survivor and a trauma addiction. I just keep going back over and over and over. I can't break free. So I called you know, a hypnotherapist, I, I actually interviewed several in my local area and chose one to work with. And I went in and I sat down and I said, look, I've got PTSD. Here's why. You know, fix it. I Coping is not enough. I want to be free. And it took us about three months. And we worked every other week. And I, I couldn't believe it when I found myself completely symptom-free. Now, that makes it sound like, oh, it only took eight, you know, three months, but I'd really been working for like eight years to try to heal. So, <laughs> you know, you put together, it's like a buffet. You just tie a little of this and a little of this, and you keep moving in a direction that feels better. You know, I interviewed Babette Rothschild, one of my favorite trauma gurus on my radio show, and she said, 
when I asked her, how do you know that you're moving in the right direction? Because trauma recovery is so curvy. It's not a straight line. And she said, you know you're moving in the right direction if you're feeling better. It's just that simple. If you start feeling worse, then you know you need to change your modality or your practitioner or the pace. Something's got to be changed. And and that really is the way that I, I moved through my whole recovery. What felt bad, I didn't do again. <laughs> and what <laughs> felt better, I kept trying over and over until I got somewhere. So that 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 is, I think, the biggest thing that I learned is that we really have to persevere because there's no manual for PTSD recovery, and yet we do have proof it can be done. I want to ask a little bit about your process of choosing a hypnotherapist because it wasn't just one or two. You, you looked at a lot, didn't you? I can. I am the world's worst decision maker. <laughs> I have to like make a pro and con list. I have to look at something from every angle. I need to sit on it for days. I'm very cautious. And I was, you know, even more so in my PTSD days. So I felt if I'm going to trust somebody to work with me on this very delicate material in a modality that I don't really understand, hypnosis has such a bad rap. You know, we all, I was talking to a nurse practitioner about this today, and she said, oh, hypnosis is all about making someone quack like a duck. I said, it's it's really not. (laughs) You know, that's what we all think of. But in hypnosis, you remain completely in control and you accept or reject any suggestion somebody makes. So when we see people on a stage quacking like a duck, it's because they wanted to be on the stage and quack like a duck. And I, I didn't understand any of that before I started hypnosis. So I was really very tentative of who am I going to let into my mind, you know, and so I did a Google search for hypnosis in my local area, and a bunch of names popped up. And I literally, Ken, I did not make a single appointment. I called and asked to speak to each hypnotherapist. I talked to seven or eight, and I had a list of questions that I wanted to ask them from their training, their background, how many trauma survivors they'd worked with, you know, what kind of success they had seen, and... And I wanted to know their personal background, like how often have you used hypnosis and how has it benefited your life and why are you using this modality in your, you know, in your practice? Because I wanted to know about the person, not just the process, who was going to be helping me. And, and so I did. I interviewed all of them and I narrowed it down to two people because, Ken, you know, sometimes you can get on the phone with someone and right away you know, I can't, I can't work with this person. Their mm-hmm. energy is all wrong. Their tone of voice is all wrong. They won't answer the questions. I talked to one person who said to me she would help me with um, hypnosis um, because of her Unitarian faith, and it would work because of that. And I thought, you know what, I just need someone not quite so narrow. And then I talked to another person who said that – who. She was such a ball of nerves that I thought, how am I going to relax anywhere near her? She could barely breathe on the phone. And then I talked to a guy who wouldn't answer any of my questions. He would skirt them and answer, I don't know, some question he was forming in his head. It wasn't the question I was asking. So I started to narrow things down, and I got down to two people, one man who said he would work with me all day for $1,500. And he would have me cured by the end of the day. And I just, after 25 years of PTSD, I found it suspicious Mm -hmm. that it could all be cured in 
you know, less than 24 hours. <laughs> and, then I, and, then, and then I narrowed it down to him and a woman who said to me, she herself was a trauma survivor. Hypnosis had helped save her life. And she wanted to work with me once a week for one hour, and we would take it one hour at a time. And that made me feel safe and in control, and it sounded reasonable, and like there was a plan that I could understand. And both of them, both the man and the woman, spent over half an hour on the phone with me before I even made an appointment so that I could just get comfortable knowing who they were. And that also really helped me choose who I wanted to work with because they were willing, and this is what I love about the alternative healing field because I do this now for my clients before you even make an appointment I spend 30 to 45 minutes on the phone with you just so you can get to know me and make sure you're making a decision that's comfortable for you because in trauma recovery if you're not comfortable with the decision that you've made or comfortable with who you're working with it's hard to get any work done and so when I finally really felt comfortable with the woman that was it I said you know sign me up and I went in, and I really was present. For a long time, I didn't engage in my trauma recovery. I showed up to my therapist's office and expected him to do the work. You know, it was, here I am once a week, heal me, do your thing. And I didn't work in between the meetings, and I didn't really work in the meeting. And uh, and that, that didn't work out so well for me. <laughs> so later in my recovery, I started to really engage and participate, and that made the process go much quicker. Well, I think there's a really important point here, a couple points actually, but one is about therapeutic alliance, and I don't think it matters whether it's addiction, PTSD, depression, anxiety, whatever you're working with a therapist on, whatever the issue, the therapeutic alliance between the client and the therapist is a huge importance, and if it's not there, I don't think that the therapy is really going to work well. I totally agree with you. And it's almost, you know, it's it's so hard, Ken, because as a trauma survivor, and, you know, a lot of us, you know, addiction was not in my background because my, my trauma was related to an antibiotic. So, like, that was a drug, and to me all drugs were, you know, a death sentence for me. So I never got into... Uh, you know, substance abuse, but I think whether it's PTSD or it's addiction or it's just plain trauma, it's very hard to trust a stranger with your real self. And that is a difficult little maze to navigate because you need help, so you need to reach out. And you're so right, Ken, that therapeutic alliance, that connection with somebody is so critical. And it's at, it's at a time that you're feeling so fragile and like the world is dangerous. And so you really have to take the risk to let somebody reach their hand out to you and hold on to it, even if it's not the most comfortable thing to do in the beginning. And in that case, then you really do have to choose the person you feel most comfortable with while you feel uncomfortable. Yeah, and I think it's really important to Put in the effort to find the person that you can have a good therapeutic alliance with because I think all too often um, there's a lot of crappy therapists out there. I think uh, there's a lot of uh, not very good hypnotists and not very good psychotherapists, mm -hmm. not very good CBT practitioners. I mean, I tried many times to pursue therapy and because I was uh, – 
quite poor at the time. I tended to get thrown in with the first person that was available and didn't have much choice. And I had some of the crappiest therapists. And, you know, I was totally – anything I said was invalidated. People would not listen to me. They would tell me, well, you need to go to AA. And I said, I didn't come to talk to you about going to AA, which I despise and hate and can't stand. It drives me to drink. I, talk, <laughs> I came to you to talk about depression. Well, I'm not interested. I'm, I want to tell you to go to AA because I think you ought to. And it's like, well, you're not here to dictate what you think I ought to do. Aren't you supposed to be my therapist? And no, I'm going to tell you what to do because you're an addicted person and everybody knows that you have to tell them what to do. And I said, after a while, I was like, well, you're fired. Goodbye. Uh, I love that. I think you're so right. You do sometimes have to fire your therapist. I was, you know, I had a, a severe eating disorder. I became enormously anorexic. And my parents dragged me from therapist to therapist. And they all kept telling me, you have body image issues. And I kept saying, I really, I could care less about this body. I spent a lot of time dissociated because being in my body was terrifying to me. So I really didn't care about the body, which is, you know, partly why I didn't feed it. <laughs> and and I think you're so right, Ken. We have to hold our practitioners responsible for meeting us where we are, not demanding we come where they want us to be. And you can't tell someone they have body image issues and not listen to them respond or tell someone go to AA and not listen when they respond because you can't help somebody if you're negating everything that they say and not meeting them where they are and working with them in the space they're in. So that's a great point that you made. Absolutely. And I think, you know, some people might just think, you know, well, hypnotism is just hypnotism. You don't need a therapeutic alliance. But I would say that's totally, that's totally wrongheaded. I think that if you have a therapeutic alliance with your hypnotist, that it can be successful. And if you don't, there's a lot of hypnotists out there that I wouldn't have any trust with, trust in. Well, I, I totally I agree with that. I mean, I had a therapist who talked about my trauma till we were both blue in the face, but never once said to me, do you know what it means to be traumatized? Let's discuss that you're a survivor, and let's talk about the impact of post-traumatic stress. I mean, literally, Ken, I started researching because I was getting worse and worse. What is going on? And I just started by researching my trauma. You know, I, I, I knew what the experience felt like, but I didn't know what it really meant. And when I started researching what had happened to me, that led me straight to trauma literature. And, I, and it was like a, a light bulb. I mean, nobody had ever mentioned to me, you've been traumatized. <laughs> and here's what happens to some people when they've been traumatized. So I always felt like a freak and like I was going crazy when once I started reading the literature, it was totally normal. And then from there... It led me to literature about dissociation, and I thought, oh, my God, they're describing the way that I live. And then from there, I, it took me to literature about post-traumatic stress disorder, and I found a PTSD self-test, which I have now put on the HealMyPTSD.com website because I think it's so enormously helpful. 22 questions based on the criteria for diagnosis. I answered positively to 20 of them. Ken, I took this test to my therapist and said, do you think I have PTSD? And he said to me, what is PTSD? 
<laughs> so when you talk about we can be working with people who just don't have a clue what they're doing, I mean, it goes all the way down to that ridiculous level. We really, the point you're making, Ken, is we have to advocate for ourselves. And it's very hard to do that when you're in addiction or you're in depression. But the truth is we are still responsible for our own self-advocacy, even when we're struggling the most. Because we have to find the people that we feel are not only qualified and able to help us, but that we are willing to accept their help. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I finally had to address my depression uh, primarily with uh, things that I got from self-help books, which I have nothing against self-help books. They can be very helpful, but the, the generally the uh, the... the the more severe your problem, the harder it is to deal with it with a book alone. Mm. And I think it really uh, slowed me down a lot because, you know, I was just not having, I was not having, you know, success with this therapist I was seeking. I remember one instance where I went to the therapist and uh, the initial meeting, you know, he asked me, had I ever been in addiction treatment? And I said, yes. And he said, have I been abstinent for the last six months. And I said, no, I've been following moderate drinking guidelines. And he said, well, that means you have to check into our substance abuse program and be abstinent for six months before I can treat your depression. And I said, what are you talking about? That's ridiculous because if you treat the depression, you might actually end up treating the substance abuse and the, the core reason for it, right? Well, moreover, I wasn't abusing the substances. I was, I was within moderate drinking guidelines. Oh, right. So I wasn't abusing the substance. I just wasn't abstaining. But it's like, oh, that does. You're not abstaining. Well, that's you have to be abstinent. We don't count moderate drinking. We don't. You know, it's like this. It's either X or Y. It's black or white. Well, what mm-hmm. happened to gray? <laughs> <laughs> that's a great question. And I think when you realize that there is no gray, that might be a moment that you start to think, I need to find somebody else. I mean, there are clues along the way that you're working with someone that's not appropriate for you, like they're putting you in a box, and what they say is the only way. Mm-hmm. And what's, yeah, what's, go ahead. What's so frustrating though is when you're depressed, and then you you finally manage to make the effort to seek the help, and they, you yeah. get slammed down, and it just makes you sink back into depression. It's it's so hard to get out and you're do anything so right. again. Well, how did you get out then? Um. Well, a lot of it was uh, through using self-help books, and um, surprisingly, one of the biggest influences on me was Epictetus, who is a Greek Stoic philosopher. I know who he is. I love him. Yeah, he kind of uh, laid all the groundwork for CBT, which you know Albert Ellis, uh, you know, absolutely admits his debt to Epictetus and says, you know, I, I took this from the Greek Stoics, you know, this and just brought it up to date. <laughs> so that was a huge influence. Uh, plus, I read things by Albert Ellis, uh, David Burns, MD, the Feeling Good book, and you know, I managed to eventually apply them and got out of this. Uh, got in some online support groups. Um, I was involved in moderation management for quite a while, and that was very helpful to ha- get a social network. Even because I didn't have a social network in uh, real life, but I built one online first, and then started getting one built in real life. Based right. on the online one, and then, well, eventually I moved away from uh, moderation management and founded the Hams Harm Reduction, which is the, it's a slightly different take. Well, you know, moderation management, uh, 
people involved in that are pursuing certain moderate drinking guidelines. And in harm reduction, we say, you know, any positive change you can make is a good thing. So it's a, it's a little different shift of focus, but there's similarities there. I, I like it because it actually, I think, so much of what goes wrong um, in terms of what I see sometimes in recovery is the expectations. And the expectations are too rigid or they're too high, and we're trying to go from, you know, total despair to absolute joy, or we're working with a practitioner. I honestly, I have a client who was working with a practitioner before me in a, uh, with EMDR, actually. And after three sessions, she wasn't really feeling that much better. And the practitioner said to her, well, by now you should be really joyful. So if this isn't, <laughs> you know, if this hasn't happened, there's something really wrong with you, you need medication. And that was ludicrous. You, you, know? ought, you ought to feel this. That's, that's really bizarre for any therapist to say. You ought to feel this way. I know, right? And to me, it's, you know, she's inept in her job. And so instead of being able to stay with the client and meet them where they are and work in the space they're in, she just, you know, threw up her hands and said, the problem is you, you can't be helped, which is criminal as far as I'm concerned, because uh, it's, it's just so wrong. Absolutely. And I'm not one to uh, rush into medication. I think that's kind of the last resort. Mm. You know, for me, I generally recommend people try a self-help book first, you know, because First of all, it's cheap. You can buy like a good self-help book for seven bucks or so. And right. It works. You cured yourself really cheap. <laughs> and, you know, if you need more than that, then there are good talk therapists out there that can supplement the self-help book. There's a lot of good CBT therapists, DBT, um, and various uh, – psychodynamic, too. There's a lot of really good psychodynamic practitioners Mm-hmm. So, you know, I recommend people find somebody that's comfortable with them and a school of therapy that they feel comfortable with. And if that still doesn't work, then you can, you know, go the next step to try the medication. I mean, in certain extreme cases of, uh, you know, when people are psychotic, schizophrenic, maybe they need to go to the medication first. But even then, I don't think over-medicating people is, is the way to go. They've well, I'm getting way off track, but I'll just finish really quickly. They've done a lot of research in Finland with um, more minimal medication for schizophrenics and lots of, ter- lots of talk therapy, and uh, medication is needed, and they've had very good results. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I totally agree. And actually, I don't think it's off track at all, Ken, because I think you're making the point that, that builds on the fantastic point that you made earlier that ties into whether no matter what you're coping with or healing from you have to stay in tune with what's right for you and you have to as you know as as I was saying earlier you have to advocate for yourself and you also have to do what feels right to you so not jumping into something like medication just because somebody says so but because that's really what you feel is necessary in that moment and you've exhausted everything else yeah, and I also yeah because you've exhausted everything else because the medications they do have side effects they they you know they can have real side effects um, particularly since I work with alcohol most doctors aren't aware that uh, certain populations if you give them antidepressants they will drink more right and they just say oh you're drinking too much you must be depressed have an antidepressant and they just you know kind of hand them out like candy and it's just not the way to do it. Mhm. Mhm. 
You're right. And a lot of times I think that comes because that's the quote-unquote protocol or that's the only thing somebody knows how to do. And I, I think, like we always do with other things, if you were diagnosed with, you know, let's say stage 4 metatastic cancer, you would go for a second opinion before you accepted that kind of prognosis for yourself. And I think the same thing we can we can do in, in mental health is get a second opinion. Go get somebody else to offer you their perspective because there's more than one way to get the job of healing done. And it's it's always good. I think research is key. You know, I know you you have read widely. You are a thinking person. So we're in the same you know, vote in that sense of that we both became very self-motivated to let me, let me figure out what I need to know. And I think that's really critical, too. I just wanted to ask you, going back to PTSD now, where we're going to go back for a while, uh, are you familiar with Anna Baranofsky? Yes. Oh, we had her on the show a while back. I thought she was very good. She's great. I really love her whole perspective. Yeah, it's a, it's important very often to relive the trauma, but it has to be done very gently. I don't necessarily always think we have to relive the trauma. Absolutely, well, if you're going to do it, you need to do it gently. But I, I I respectfully disagree with that whole line of thought because I think sometimes that's re-traumatizing and that can be more detrimental than positive. And, and I think it comes back again to that we're all individuals, so you do what feels right to you, and if what feels right is staying away from reliving it, then that, that I think, is okay, too. Well, I think I agree with you. Um, that's another problem I had sometimes with therapists that I, they wanted me to tell, you know, the past history over and over and over again. Yeah. And I finally got to one, and I said, you know, Every time I go over this, it makes me more depressed, and it's not a repressed memory. I know everything that happened. There's not going to be any catharsis. You know, let's not talk about it because it is just really it's dwelling in negativity. And, right. of course, the therapist said, no, this is my method is to go through your past history, so tell me. And it's like, okay, you're fired, too. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. <laughs> I, I think that's great. It, you know, Ken, it would never have occurred to me to fire my therapist. For, like, years I sat in the same place with therapy, not getting better and not understanding why and thinking the problem was me until I realized the problem was him. He didn't know what to do with me. And and I wish I'd had, you know, the gumption to say, you're fired <laughs> way earlier than I did. Well, I guess it happened... Uh... You know, I've, I must have fired, I think I fired three of them by now. And the first one I fired must have got up my courage because um, he was a psychiatrist and, you know, I was having a terrible time with him. I, and I was in contact with uh, another counselor that I had encountered in my first addiction treatment who was very helpful and actually used to let me call her up and you know, talk to her on the phone afterwards. And, uh, she was actually the most helpful therapist probably I ever had. Unfortunately, we couldn't keep the connection after the formal treatment ended aside from occasional phone conversations. But right. you know, I was talking to her about this this guy and you know, she said if he's not any good for you, you have to fire him. And so, you know, the next uh time I was talking to him and all of a sudden he got on his high horse 
and said, you know, uh, if you don't do what I tell you to, I'm going to commit you to Anoka Hospital. And Holy cow. I said, wait a minute. I'm not stupid. I know you don't have the power to do that. But I do know that I have the power to fire you. And, <laughs> and I will. Goodbye. I, I can't even believe that he would make threats that he can't. He doesn't even legally have the power to carry out. It's Amazing. Just, I mean, he's been so used to cowing people, you know, especially people that have addictions. You know, they they get so right. beat up by the system. It's just terrible. Mm. It's criminal. And the thing is, you know, it can, because we're feeling helpless and powerless, any authority figure is somebody that we want to place our faith and belief in. You tell me I need to do this, I'll do it because I don't know any better. When the truth is, sometimes they don't know any better either. Mm-hmm. And that can be uh, dangerous for us. We have to stay awake and alert and make sure that even if somebody comes highly recommended, which the guy I was working with did, they're not the be-all, end-all, or they, and they may not have all the answers. And some sometimes I think really... We're meant to work with somebody for a specific phase. Mm -hmm, And when mm -hmm. we get through that phase, we need somebody new for the next phase. Mm -hmm. And that is really what I did. I I left my psychologist and I hooked up with a trauma therapist. And when I was done with her, I went to a hypnotherapist. And I just kept bouncing from person to person for each phase that I needed something different. And and I thought that that was okay. You know, like I, I gave myself permission to not take a straight path, to let the path curve and to show me where I needed to go. Well, there's two things you talked about in your book, and I want to give you a chance to talk a little bit about them on the show. And one of them was writing, and the other was dancing. And tell me uh, how those worked for you. Well, I've been a writer since I was seven. So that was way before my trauma. I was a writer. My parents um, were actually saying to each other, you know, maybe she's going to be a writer when she grows up, because I was constantly writing stories, and I wrote my first quote-unquote novel at the age of eight. <laughs> so it was natural to me to turn to writing throughout my whole life whenever I was working out something or I felt the need to express myself or be creative. And one of the things that I learned in the research that I did in, 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 you know, figuring out what was wrong with me, all the trauma research that I did, I started reading trauma psychology. What does it take to heal? What does it mean to release the past? And I'm going to preface this by saying I no longer believe this is true. But at the time when I was in recovery, everything that I read uh, was saying you have to be able to tell your story. And I I do not think you have to be able to tell your story. But back then, I didn't know any better, and my reading, my scope was more narrow maybe than it should have been. But so I decided I'm a writer. I'm going to start telling my story because I never could describe what had happened to me. I felt very uncomfortable. I didn't want to have to say it out loud. And so I thought, well, I'm going to sit down and I'm going to write it out. And if I can write my story, I might be able to start healing, you know. And so I started writing, and the, the thing is that once I started writing, 
I very quickly went from just writing to tell the story of my trauma to I really needed to express and get out how awful it was to live life afterward. Because honestly, Ken, my trauma ended, but the, the mental trauma continued for decades. And mm-hmm. it was harder to survive survival <laughs> than it was to survive the original trauma. And so I started writing about life with PTSD. And, um, and, and then when I, when I started hypnosis, my, therapist, my hypnotherapist said to me, stop writing. Just put the book down. Because by then I started to realize this is taking the shape of a whole story. And she said, and I, and I want to finish the story. And, and she said to me, stop it. All this writing is just making you worse. So please just give us the space to do the recovery work, and then you can go back to writing afterwards. And that's what I did. And the amazing thing is that by the time I was finished, I had written about my trauma, my PTSD, and my recovery process. And I titled the book Before the World Intruded, Conquering the Past and Creating the Future. And the book is really about the difference between before, you know, something awful happens to you and afterward. And I really felt I got stuck. There was a before and an after, but there was no now. You know, who do I become now? Am I defined by this person that I've become after this awful thing? And and so that's really, the book was born sort of organically because it started out as let me just try to heal myself. And then it became a, holy cow, I've documented this whole process. Maybe it could help other people. And and so, it, it you know, I'm, I've been so excited by the reception to the book. It's been nominated for three awards and the reviews are terrific. And the amazing thing is that I wrote in a horrible PTSD state thinking nobody was going to understand me or be able to resonate with my experience. And the funny thing is I get email from survivors of all different types of traumas, and they all say the same thing. I see myself in your book. And that's the beauty, I think, of, you know, I'm always saying we don't heal in isolation. We heal in community. And that's the beauty of building community, like you're doing with your show, like I'm doing with the HealMyPTSD.com website and my radio show and the book. We come together to share our stories and our struggles, and we start to realize we're not alone, we're not crazy, and there is a way out. And so writing for me was a way to start moving out. And then because writing was so hard and it really, my nightmares became much worse, my anxiety much less manageable. And so I got to a point where, Ken, things were so bad, such blackness, such depression, such despair, that I just thought, I can't can't live like this. I'm not going to be able to live like this and you know sometimes that little voice in your head pops up at the most unexpected moments and you never listen to it but in this moment it was so quiet and bleak in my head (laughs) that when this little voice said you need to feel joy I listened to it and I thought well that's idiotic that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard because you can't be in this much despair and be capable of feeling joy But the little voice wouldn't leave me alone. It just kept demanding, just do something that makes you feel joyful. And I looked around in my life and I thought, there is nothing that makes me feel joyful. And just by accident, I stumbled upon the fact 
that I realized when I dance, I feel really good. I feel incredibly connected to my body, which I never feel. I'm incredibly connected to the present moment, which I never am. And I feel liberated and, and free and joyful. And so I thought, there's no other way I'm going to have to dance. And and as ridiculous as it seemed, I, I you know, I'm from New York City. So I used to work in entertainment PR. I used to actually work in nightclubs. So I was out in the city all the time. It was easy in Manhattan. You could go to a nightclub any night of the weekend dance. But in order to heal, I had left New York City and moved to a tiny beach town in Florida, and there is no nightclub. So I had to find another way to dance, and I went to a local dance studio, and I had never partner danced. I didn't know what a ballroom dance was, and I didn't care. I said, sign me up, and I signed up for a dance class every day of the week, and can you know what it's like to feel depressed? It is hard to get yourself out of the house mm-hmm, mm-hmm. or even out of your sweats. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I I forced myself every day to get dressed and go to a class. And the classes, you know, it didn't it didn't have any organization. One night it was salsa, another it was Argentine tango, another night it was East Coast swing, another night it was West Coast swing. It didn't matter. I just made myself show up to the class. And for that one hour, I was so focused on learning the dance that I would be out of my PTSD head and into the moment and feeling just so joyful by the end of the class. Now, of course, that feeling didn't last because then you go back and wherever you go, there you are. So Mm -hmm. you go back home, you're still the same person you were before. But what I noticed was it it let me know, holy cow, there's another part of myself in here that's not being activated, you know, that I'm not connecting with. But she exists. All this time I've been thinking I was just this dark, depressed PTSD survivor, but there's actually another self in here, and I need her to, to come out more. I need to be with her more. I need to become her. And so I I really became dedicated over a series of months. I would go to class and the effects would start to last longer and longer. So I'd go to class and be really, you know, feeling pretty good by the end of class, come home and it would last for 15 minutes or 30 minutes. And then it would last an hour and then it would last a couple hours and then it would last overnight. And the more I danced, the more... I became able to access this other part of myself. Now, we could talk about this in emotional and psychological, you know, realms, but we also have to notice that neuroplasticity and the recent research in how the brain changes totally Mm -hmm. explains and supports everything that I experienced and why this kind of process works when you keep laying down new experiences that reinforce positive things. You can change your brain and and the absolute change that started to come over me gave me the courage to go back into my recovery work. And that was actually, it was at that point that I decided I was going to try hypnosis. I was feeling a little more connected to myself. I was feeling a lot more courageous. And I was feeling like I have this support system now. I had a great dance community. I had a great dance partner. And I had this dance schedule so that even if, the trauma recovery process was tough, 
I had an outlet to go to help me balance it better. And you talked earlier about support, and that is that can be so instrumental in being able to do the work you need to do. And so dance really led me to a place where I was ready to take the leap into the final frontier of my trauma recovery, and it really helped me get the job completely done. Yeah, neuroplasticity is really important. And sometimes I use an analogy that it's like exercising a muscle. You know, when you start first lifting weights or exercising, you can't do very much. But the more you do, the stronger you get. And that's the same way it is with your thinking habits, with any habits with your brain. Um, One of the things that we do with the harm reduction approach to alcohol is we say to people, can you abstain from drinking for one day? And Mm. start with one day. Of course, um, you know, depending on how much you've been drinking, you might have withdrawal. So some people do have to taper down, but a lot of people aren't at that level of dependence. And they, you know, they start with the one day of abstinence and say, wow, I did it. And then the next week, well, maybe they try two, or maybe they, for the first month, they want to do one day a week. Next month, they do two days a week, but build up, you know, exercise that muscle of the new habit and you get stronger and stronger. Mm-hmm. You're so right. I just, um, I know this book has been out for years, but I didn't have time to read it. And I just finished reading Norman Doidge's book, The Brain That Changes Itself. And if you want proof that the brain can change just based on exactly what you're talking about, Ken, holy cow, the book blew my mind with the science and the illustration. And I'm actually interviewing the very first case that's in that book, I'm interviewing on my radio show because it's an astounding precedent for showing you, you know, we all talk about how trauma changes us and how trauma changes the brain. And it's like we stop the conversation there. But the Mm -hmm. conversation continues. The brain changes again. Mm -hmm. And it's really important to remember that. Yeah, and I think that's hugely important uh, for whatever we're talking about, um, but especially addiction as well, you know, because they keep trying to say, a lot of people are saying, you know, because of neuroplasticity, the brain gets the new addictive habit, it's a chronic lifelong disease, and you never overcome it, but that's not true at all, because when you start making changes for the better, I mean, I quit smoking cigarettes four years ago, and I never think about smoking cigarettes anymore, you know, wow, it's gone, that's not something that's awesome. I want. It's not something I want to do. And, you know, if you tell yourself, well, I'm never going to be free of thinking about cigarettes, well, you won't be. But uh-huh. <laughs> well, whatever you believe is going to be true in your mind, you know, it will be. You're right. I totally agree. But if you believe, you know, the cigarettes are in the past, that's done. I never liked them anyway, and I never really did like them too much. I I was more I liked cigar smoking, and I do have about one a week in the summertime. Don't smoke at all in the winter because I only smoke outside where it's nice and when the weather's nice. Um, but you know I'm a moderate cigar smoker. I don't think about cigarettes at all. I don't ingest any other form of nicotine, no nicotine gum or any of that other crap, which is uh, I'm not a big fan of anyway. <laughs> I think that's so, there's just proof right there, Ken, of the power of the mind to say, I'm done. You know, I'm done. And in the Norman Doidge book, they talk about, you know, brain plasticity is great because it means you can create new habits. It's 
just they might not all be good habits. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and he makes the point in the book, you sometimes you have to unlearn things. Well, the brain is plastic, so it can unlearn things, but you have to unlearn them in a way that the brain changes. So that, uh, and it's a it's a neat process the way he outlines it in the book because it, it's sort of taking a twist on it and putting yourself in a, in a new direction that is entirely possible as long as you make the, you know, the commitment to it. That's really, I think, where things so often fall apart. We say we want to change, but then we don't want to do the work. Or the work gets difficult and we don't want to persevere. So it, no matter whether you're coming or going, everything stops with your own action. And if you stop taking action, everything stops changing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, we're coming to the end of the show now, so what would you like to leave our listeners with? The idea that you have enormous healing potential. The goal is learning to access it. You have to dig deep. You have to find your way. You have to reach out. You have to research. But you can do this. And I believe in you, and you have to believe in you. And I think that together, we are all so strong in our potential and our capability. And so it's really coming together and finding our individual ways at the same time so that we move forward away from the past, which has zero significance in the present. You choose who you are today. And and it can be done, and it's it's up to you. Okay, I'd like to thank you for being our guest this evening, Michelle Rosenthal. Thank you so much, Ken. Uh, This has been such a great conversation. Thank you. And for more information about PTSD and recovery, HealMyPTSD.com has an award-winning blog and a slew of free information. And also, my radio show is archived with all of the top healing professionals at yourlifeaftertrauma.com. You can just click on the radio tab. My passion, Ken, is information. The more information we have, the better choices we can make. So thank you so much for the work that you do and for having me and allowing me to contribute tonight. And I will be on Michelle's show coming up in uh, June, I believe we're scheduled for. Yes, I think it is. And uh, next week, we'll be back with our guest, Beverly Buncher, who will be talking about her program called Being a Loving Mirror, which is about what to do if your loved one struggles with addiction, how to deal with it, and how to help them change. So thank you, everyone, and good night.